Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and our eyes to your word tonight. Speak to us and draw us closer to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're marching through the scriptures in overview fashion. Tonight we are uh, up to the book of 2 Corinthians. And so in the New Testament we've covered the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels, which is just a big word that means seen together. It means they're all very similar in their style. And then John writes the fourth gospel from a later point in history to just really make sure he captures... Uh, as the last of the living apostles at that time, he really wanted to capture, make sure we understood some things about the nature of Jesus Christ. And so we get the Gospel of John. Then we get the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. And then we come to the epistles or the letters. And these are uh, letters that were written to the church. And so all scripture has a ton of application for us. But these are portions that were specifically written to us as believers. And even some of them you can say, well, it's written to the you know, to this city or that city. Well, in a lot of them, uh, actually the author, be it Paul or Peter or whoever else, will say, uh, pass it around. And so I think it's actually in Second Corinthians where he says, uh, no, it's in Colossians, where he says, hey, I'm sending a letter to you guys. I'm sending a letter to another church. Share them when you get them. Um, so these parts of scripture have an have a immense amount of application for us. And so it's... Uh, it's incredibly rich for us to get to go through them. But tonight we're in 2 Corinthians. And uh, to give a little bit of context, we've got to remember where this book is at and, and the history of this church in Corinth. Because we actually, uh, we know that Paul wrote at least three letters to the Corinthians, possibly four. Uh, so what we call 1 and 2 Corinthians is probably either 1 and 3 Corinthians or 2 and 4 Corinthians. And Paul will make references in these letters to other letters that he had written them that just aren't scripture. And it doesn't mean that there was anything bad in them, but um, it just means that as the Lord was putting together the Bible, those didn't need to be there. So it might have been that Paul had some specific things that, you know, applied to a specific situation that just didn't need to be universal. Uh, we really don't know. But so we have what we call First and Second Corinthians. But in the context, we got to remember, you know, last week, Dad talked about the Corinthian church was a church that just had so many struggles at different points. And Paul really wrote 1 Corinthians to address a lot of those issues and say, okay, let's cover some, some you know, really basic ideas, like don't get drunk when you're taking communion. Um, should be, you know, you would think at least that'd be fairly straightforward, but it wasn't. And so Paul's addressing that. He's addressing you know, sexuality in the church, and what's the church's response to sexuality, and, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and what's to be the biblical response to that. And so he writes this letter of really a lot of rebuke, and then uh, probably about 18 months goes by, uh, people who look at it historically, and then Paul gets an update on the church. And the update is, hey, the church is doing great. The church received everything you said. They they dealt with the people who needed to be dealt with. They're walking in order. They're, you know, they're growing in the Lord. They're not suing each other in court over stupid things. But they've got some questions. And, and they're not really like questions about how do we do church. They're questions about you specifically, Paul. And so what had happened was, and Paul will reference this throughout 2 Corinthians, what happened was these false brethren came from Jerusalem and they said, actually, we are real apostles. We're certified apostles. And Paul is not. Paul is leading you astray. 
Paul has all kinds of reasons why you should be suspicious of him. First of all, he doesn't take a paycheck from you guys. Is that suspect or what? The man is not taking your money. Now, anybody knows if he's not taking your money, that means there's something shady going on. Second of all, we actually have papers that prove that we're apostles. See, it says right here, certified apostle. Did Paul ever show you these papers? No, we didn't think so. And so the church is getting these men who are coming in and they're claiming you know, authority and power and they're, they're really discrediting Paul and the church is a little bit tore up and well, okay, your, your papers look authentic. Uh, you said you're from Jerusalem, so maybe that means you've got you know, some credibility here. Maybe you're coming from the, the 12 disciples, but you know what, we don't know. So is Paul the real deal or is he not? And so <clears throat> Paul writes 2 Corinthians in essence to defend not just himself, but really to defend the ministry. And to say, here's the deal, guys. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm doing, what I've done, what, what's been happening is not me giving you my philosophy. It's not me touting my opinion. It's not me ripping you off. It's the work of God. And so 2 Corinthians, Paul has to basically back up and explain that. And so what we're going to see is basically the first really seven chapters is Paul's approach to ministry. And, you know, he said Romans, in a lot of ways, is Paul just kind of writing his summary of, here's the gospel. Well, in a lot of ways, 2 Corinthians, especially the first seven chapters or so, is Paul's approach to, here's ministry. Here's what ministry looks like. And along the way, it ties in very closely with, well, here's a bunch of promises from the Lord for us to hold on to as a church. Because the promises from God are never meant to just sit in our heart and stagnate. They're meant to sit in our heart and bear fruit so that as we've been ministered to by the promises of God, we can minister to others. And so then chapters 8 and 9, they had some specific questions about giving and Paul's approach to money. And then chapters 10 and 12, Paul's going to basically say, since you guys asked, I will give you a list of reasons why I'm, I'm qualified to actually teach you guys. Um, so, so we're going to see in the first seven chapters Paul's approach to ministry, but we have to kind of back up and ask ourselves, what exactly is ministry? Because it's a word that we can hear, and we have sort of this like vague idea, you know, what is, what is ministry or what is a minister, right? And that probably depends on your background. Like there might be, you know, a certain outfit involved. There might be a certain approach. There might be a certain type of speaking. There might be a certain amount of education that somebody has to have to be a minister. What, what's a minister? Well, the word minister uh, is the word servant. In, in Greek, basically, minister is servant. And so if somebody ever wants to, you know, tout themselves because they're a minister, it's, well, actually, um, that makes you a servant. And, and most of the words for leadership that we have in the church are like that. The word deacon, you know the word deacon means? The word deacon means under rower, because when the Greeks and Romans would row their ships. They had no, you know, they didn't have diesel engines. When they would row their ships, they would have decks of guys rowing. And the guys who were in the very bottom of the ship, who couldn't see the light, those were the deacons, okay? Those are the guys who had one job, and that was to grab an oar and just move the ship. And so deacons in a church are really not the guys calling the shots. They're not supposed to be the guys, you know, raking in the dough. They're just guys who are there to help get the ship where it needs to go. And so, you know, what is ministry? Ministry is service. And so with that, we, ha we have to understand that in context or else somebody says, well, let's talk about ministry and we can automatically go, well, I'm not a minister. So this must not apply to me. 
And the reality is, if you have responded to the good news, if you have responded to the gospel, if you believe that Jesus Christ came to earth, died for your sins, was resurrected, and is transforming your life, then you're a minister. You're in the ministry. You are part of the ministry team of God. And so in that sense, these chapters very much apply to you. And so we're going to see Paul's take on ministry. We're also going to see some promises of God that he reminds us of to help us in our ministry. So, you know, he opens up, says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, uh, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. So what is ministry? Well, in the context of the promises of God, let's back up. What is a promise from God here? The Lord comforts us in our affliction. Do you have something hard that you're going through? Do you have something hard that you've been through or something that you can maybe, you know, something that's coming or a situation that's coming up? Do you have an affliction or a hardship coming? God is able to comfort you in that. He wants to comfort you in that. And why? Well, he wants to comfort you so that you will be equipped to comfort someone else. Because, you know, like we said, ministry is about serving. God wants you to be able to serve someone else by blessing them with the same comfort that he's given you. So when you go through a situation in life and it's hard and it's rough and it's, you know, it's stressing you out and then you get through it, you have an understanding and an awareness of, hey, here's, you know, I can resonate with your struggle. And then when you meet someone who is struggling with that same thing, you can say, you know, I've been through that. And you know what's interesting? I couldn't get through it on my own, but there's a God who comforted me in the midst of that and he wants to comfort your heart too. And so it's a promise from God that he is comforting us in our afflictions, but it's also an emphasis on what is ministry. Ministry is comforting people as God has comforted us. And that's really, you know, I love that Paul just opens up with this because it's not super complex, right? If you've gone through something hard and you meet somebody who's going through that hard thing, God has, has let you experience that hardship and now is your opportunity to use it. You can use what he taught you through that to bless someone else. And in the same vein, if you're going through something hard, don't waste the opportunity uh, being upset at God or being upset at other people. Try and see it as, oh, the Lord wants to comfort me in this and not just comfort me, but actually build me up and equip me so that I will be able to comfort other people. Paul says, you know, the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. Christ went through all kinds of hard things. We're going through all kinds of hard things. But if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort. If we're going through hard things, it's for, it's for the ability to comfort others. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort. So if your life is hard, that's great. It's, it's an opportunity that the Lord wants to use. If your life is, you know, posh and cushy and all that stuff, that's great too. That's an opportunity that the Lord wants to use. And so just, you know, what is ministry? It's comforting people. Chapter 1, verse really verse 12 through uh, kind of halfway through chapter 2, Paul's just going to, he's going to say, you know, basically, uh, hey, I wanted to come visit you guys in person, but I wasn't able to. And he's going to reference a little bit of that, the other letter that he would have written. Uh, 
But he's like, hey, you know what? Wanted to get that cover, but sorry, I, you know, got tied up. Verse 14 of chapter 2, he says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. He's been saying, guys, I wanted to come to you, but I got stuck here, and then I got a call to go preach the gospel here, and I was doing ministry here. And so you know what? Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't get to come to you, but hey, thanks be to God. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. Ministry is not always this clear-cut vision, right? Paul was going to Corinth until God said, no, Paul, you're not. And so Paul wound up going over here and over here, and he went to Troas and Macedonia. And, you know, as he's writing this, he's like, I'm still wanting to get back to you, but the Lord hasn't let it work yet. And you know what's happening? We're walking in triumph. Paul's, uh, you know, Paul's geographically, he's not totally sure where he's going. And you can read in the book of Acts where this is at, and you realize Paul's a little bit unsure of what the next steps are. But he's writing this saying, we're walking in triumph in Christ. Because ministry is not about understanding all the perfect answers for what's coming next. Ministry is about, I'm in a situation right now, and I have an opportunity to serve someone and to serve the Lord and be a part of what God is doing. And in that, we have triumph. And he says uh, in verse 17, for we're not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity. He's like, guys, it doesn't matter where I go. I'm not a traveling salesman for Jesus Christ. I'm a preacher of the gospel. I'm a minister. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm not here to get something out of it. But wherever I go, wherever God directs me, that's where we're gonna, that's where we're gonna stop and we're gonna sow the word of God and we're gonna serve other people, right? Ministry is not tied to a specific building or a specific location or a specific group of people. Ministry is, where are you right now? You're in ministry and then your ministry is right there. It is right in front of you. And so that's where he's going. Uh, chapter three, he's gonna talk about, you know, he said there's these, these false brethren had come in and said, hey, we have letters that certify that we're actual apostles. And Paul doesn't have letters, does he? Paul did not graduate from the Jerusalem Bible College, did he? And the church is a little bit tore up and says, you know, hey, Paul, um, feel kind of awkward asking this, but do you have a degree of anything, right? And like, what's your background? And Paul says, verse two, well, verse one, chapter three. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? It's like, I don't need letters, and I'll tell you why. Verse two, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. He says, I don't need a letter. Look at your life. Go back and ask and, and remind yourself of what your life was like before you met Christ. And now look at where you're at. Look at the fellowship that you have with God that's been restored through Jesus Christ. Yeah, I don't need a, I don't need, Paul's like, I don't need a seminary certificate to share the gospel. You're the proof that the gospel is effective. You're the proof that the gospel's gone out with power. You're the proof that the spirit of God is not hindered. And so, you know, this is critical for us uh, because I don't think any of us in the room, maybe, has anybody in the room gone to seminary and like graduated from seminary? None of us, including myself. 
right? And every once in a while I get asked that fun question, like, you know, where'd you go to college or where'd you go to seminary? It's like, well, you see, I work in a shop by myself and I listen to a lot of podcasts. And that's like, the, and that's like, and you know, I pray a lot that God will give me the gift of teaching when I need it. And that's about the summary of the qualifications. Because ministry is not about having to attain a certain level. It's about what's the spirit of God calling you to and doing through you. And so then he goes on in verse 7 and says, But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face. Uh, verse 8, How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? And so he kind of backs up and he says, You know, if we're talking about writing things down, let's talk about the Ten Commandments. And, you know, Moses received the Ten Commandments from God and the presence of God there on the mountain was so intense that his face shone, literally. Moses literally glowed. And he says, that was the law. And we talked about in Romans that, you know, what the law is able to do is show you how sinful you are. Paul's saying, the law, right, that, you know, coming close enough to God to understand how sinful you are was so intense that Moses glowed. He says, how much more intense do you think it is if we're coming close enough to God to be raised to life and empowered and be transformed by the Holy Spirit. That's a different level. He says, yeah, I don't have letters. No, I don't have a certificate and I don't need one because the Spirit of God is transforming your hearts. He goes on um, in chapter four and he says, therefore, and so he's kind of blanketed his overall like, you know, what are our main points? The Spirit of glory is coming and that's the proof of ministry. The proof of ministry is when the Spirit of God is doing a work. And so now he's going to jump into uh, the therefores. And, you know, like the book of Ephesians is like two chunks. First chunk is here's what's God done, what God has done. And then chapter four, verse one, he says, therefore. And the whole rest of the book is here's what we do as a result of what God has done. Well, starting here, Paul's going to say, therefore, 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 uh, therefore, therefore, therefore. He just keeps going. And then he runs out of therefores and he says, now. So chapter four, we're going to jump into the therefore. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. Therefore what? Therefore, because the spirit of God is transforming hearts and lives, we don't lose heart. Now this is in context, okay? Paul is, he is getting beat up everywhere he goes. He is a little bit unsure of where he's going. He, you know, if you look on a map, it says in the book of Acts, he went to Troas, uh, and he went to Troas because that's the only place he could go. He tried to go north. The Lord said no. He tried to go south. The Lord said no. He tried to go east or west. I forget which one. And then he went to Troas, and he stopped at Troas because on the other side of Troas is the ocean. And he just kind of got stuck in Troas because that was the only place he could go, and he's preaching the gospel. And what, is, what does he say? He says, therefore, we don't lose heart. He's got all kinds of uncertainty. He's got all kinds of affliction. He's got all kinds of troubles. And what's his summary? Hey, you know what? It's cool. And it's not in his own strength. It's just, hey, you know what? We're walking in triumph. We're walking in glory because we're in the ministry and God has called us to this. And we are experiencing what God is doing and it's right in front of us. So, and then uh, verse 16 of chapter four, he carries the same idea. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, 
but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. He says, guys, we're not losing heart. Yeah, our enemy is decaying. We are dying. Okay, now Paul's going to, at the end of this book, give a list of the hardships he's gone through. Paul is a beat up, scarred up man at this point in his life. Okay, he says, you know, this momentary light affliction. Paul was stoned until the people thought he was dead. They threw rocks at his head until they were convinced he was dead. And Paul says, you know, this like, these headaches and this just kind of, you know, this temporary stuff, it's no big deal. Why? Because it's producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And so he says, we're not looking at things that we can see, we're looking for the things that we can't see. Paul's got a perspective of ministry. Ministry is, you know, ministry is very much who's the person or the need or the situation in front of you where God is calling you and setting you. But ministry is not, here's what I need to see or here's the result I need to have happen. Ministry is God is going to do his thing in his timing, in his way. And so we may not see desired results. Paul went to some cities and they just drove them out. And that was not what he was hoping for. He was hoping to see the whole town get saved. But he gets driven out and he says, you know what? The Lord is doing the work. And the Lord is building something eternal right here. And so I didn't see the immediate result I wanted to. And that's okay because I'm in the ministry. I'm in the service of the Lord. Servants don't have to call the shots. Servants don't have to decide the results. Servants have to what? Just obey. They just got to do what they're supposed to do. And Paul is like, hey, you know, I'm serving the guy who wins. So... Setbacks really aren't an issue. Temporary light affliction, not really an issue. My outer man is decaying. My body is falling apart. It's not really an issue because God's in control. And we're pushing forward for those things that aren't seen. He carries the idea on into chapter five. He says, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house that's not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, Longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we having put it on will not be found naked. He says, look, don't get me wrong. I'm ready to go to heaven. I want to, this body is kind of holding me back. I am ready to go. But I've still got ministry. I've got things to do. And so, you know what? I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried if the Lord keeps me alive. If the Lord lets me die, that's awesome too. I'm, I'm set. If this, if, this, if this tent dies, there's a building coming. Right? And that's the idea of the resurrection. And he says in verse 6, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. He's saying, you know, we know that while we're here, we're not home yet. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. He says, okay, look, we know that right now we're not in the fullness of our relationship with the Lord. That's going to come when our bodies are transformed in the resurrection. And we're walking by faith and not by sight. We believe that because, you know, not because it's this scientific fact or law, it's because we believe the word of God. He's demonstrated it. He's demonstrated it through his word, which is scientifically accurate and is historically accurate. And the Lord has given us enough evidence in the scripture to make it a very reasonable faith, but he's also left enough mysteries in the scripture for us that it's a very reasonable faith. So he says, yeah, we're walking by faith. And, you know, truth be told, I'd rather be absent from this body and home with the Lord. But, so here's what I do. My goal, whether I'm at home or absent, 
is to be pleasing to him. That's ministry. Our goal as servants, what, what is the job of a servant? Please the master. Please the person in charge. If we're in the ministry, our, our goal, our job, is to please the Lord. So what's the Lord calling you to do? I don't know. You've got to figure it out. You've got to ask the Lord. You've got to seek his will. You've got to be in fellowship with him, and then he'll drop ministry right in front of you. And sometimes you just got to say, okay, that is not the ministry I was hoping for, but it's the ministry in front of me. And so he's like, you know, it doesn't matter. If I'm here or there, whatever, my goal is to please the Lord. Um, Mary told me the other day, actually, that every time I'm looking for a verse, I make that noise. So I realize it's true. Uh, he says, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. That's what drives Paul's ministry. And these are, uh, these are you know, principles and guidelines for us. And we're looking at all these promises from God about the, you know, the weight of glory and the promise of the Spirit of God and the Lord comforts us in all our afflictions. But we're also looking at our response. And part of our response is the love of Christ controls us. What's driving you? Is it the fact that you know that God loves you? Is that driving you to the point where you want to know that kind of love more? If you don't, if that's not driving you, you got to back up and say, do you understand what that is? If we could truly understand what the love of God looks like, I don't think anything else would matter in life. So if other things in life matter, then a very reasonable assumption is we don't really understand the love of God. So if you don't understand the love of God, you need to back up, go to the Word, ask the Lord to reveal His love to you. Uh, chapter, still in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. He's saying, guys, here's the deal. Because of this, because we recognize that our outer man is decaying, because we recognize that it's not about our educational background, it's about what the Spirit of God is doing, therefore, we don't recognize anybody according to the flesh. We make no distinction. We do not say... You know, we don't talk about rich Christians and poor Christians or black Christians and white Christians or whatever. You know, we, no. What makes a, a faithful minister of the gospel a person who's a faithful minister of the gospel? What are the qualifications? What are the requirements for serving the Lord? You just got to serve the Lord, right? How much money do you have to have or how much background or, or where do you have to live? No, you just got to serve the Lord. Whatever he says, just do it. And he says, basically, here's the requirement. Verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. If you're, the only requirement to serve the Lord is that you've got to be serving the Lord. You have to be under the Lord's ownership. You've got to be a new creature in Christ. The Lord has to have transformed you into something that you aren't otherwise. You've got to be saved by the power of Jesus Christ. You've got to be made alive by the power of God in your soul, or else you are not going to be a minister. And so what's the requirement? Know the Lord and then minister. And so he, he keeps moving on. Chapter 6, he gives us this beautiful little summary of what ministry could look like or should look like or might look like in it. It's a little bit all-encompassing. But uh, starting in verse 2, I'm uh, halfway through. He says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When is a good time to be in the ministry? 
right now. Right now. You know, Peter in his epistle said, you know what? The time past is already sufficient for us to have walked in our sins and our lust and all that stuff. We have already spent enough of our life. We've already wasted enough time serving ourselves. When's a good time to serve the Lord? This moment onward, right? Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about the mistakes. That's where the Lord's grace covers all your sins. But when do you want to serve the Lord? From this moment forward. So, verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. We're not being jerks in ministry because we don't want the ministry of God to be discredited. Verse 4, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrow but always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing all things now is the acceptable time to serve the Lord and what's it going to include it's going to include hard things it's going to include great things you're going to have distresses and beatings and you're going to have purity patience kindness in the Holy Spirit in genuine love in the word of truth it's going to have people slandering your reputation and it's going to have realities and truths like uh, we're sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. We're punished, and yet we're not put to death, right? Uh, we're dying, and yet we're alive, right? The more we're dying, the more alive we become if it's in, if it's in Christ. So that's ministry right there. That's the summary. Now is the time we commend ourselves to the Lord, and whatever else comes, all of those things, all the hard things, all the good things, it's still worthwhile. That's ministry. Um, and then chapter 7 he says, therefore, verse 1, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If you want to be in ministry, don't walk in sin. We talked about that in Romans. We've talked about that really a lot this year. But you need to walk in victory. And you're not going to do that in your own strength. You're going to do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? But you want to walk in ministry? You want to experience all these things? and know that the power of God is transforming your life? Okay, great. Let's cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. Who's going to perfect holiness in themselves in the fear of the Lord? None of us. So what's this a call to? This is a call to let the Lord strengthen you and become, you know, we talked about in Romans, a slave of righteousness, right? Present yourselves as like, you know what? I just want to be a slave of righteousness. I want righteousness to just control my life and drive everything I do and call all the shots. I want to be a slave of righteousness. I want to be a slave of, of God. And so that's really, those first seven chapters are Paul's sort of summary on ministry. Now he's going to shift gears a little bit in chapters eight and nine. And he's going to talk about giving, which is fun. Um, you know, dad said that I dumped him with 1 Corinthians because I didn't want to cover sexuality and singleness and gifts of the Spirit and all that. Well, he was happy to dump me with 2 Corinthians because he didn't want to cover giving. So, um, so chapter 8 and 9, he's responding to a couple things, okay? Uh, 
the first thing is, these false brethren who are coming in were saying, have you ever noticed that Paul doesn't take a salary from this church? I bet that means he's got an underhanded gig going on. He's probably selling drugs <clears throat> and ministering the gospel at the same time. Because real pastors take a salary, which is why we would like to take a salary from you right now, if you don't mind, to demonstrate that we're real pastors. And so that's one thing that Paul has to address. The other thing is, Paul is taking up a, he is taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. And contextually, to be a Jewish convert to Christianity at that time meant that your family could confiscate all your property, your wife could divorce you, and you could be basically barred from employment. So to become a Jewish Christian in the first century church was a major economic hit, okay? And so Paul was taking up a collection from the Gentile churches. He's saying, hey guys, you know what? These are the people who got saved first and spread the gospel to all of us. So we, frankly, owe them, uh, you know, some gratitude. So let's make it tangible and take up, a, take up an offering. And the Corinthian church had basically guaranteed a certain amount. And Paul's writing basically to say, hey, you know what? I know I haven't made it in person yet. I'd like to make it in person. But here's the deal. It's going to be awkward for you and for me if I show up and the gift that you promised to give is not there. I don't want to have to say, I don't want to have to call you out on it. You really don't want to have me call you out on it. So I'm just giving you a heads up. If you promised money to the Lord, give it to the Lord. Okay, so that's kind of where he's coming at from this. But along the way, he gives some really very solid principles on the concept of giving. And so he's talking about, you know, he's taking a collection from multiple churches. So he talks, he's going to reference the church in Macedonia, or the churches in Macedonia, and the amount that they had given. And in verse 5, he makes an interesting comment. He says, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. What is giving? Giving, in any sort of financial sense, should be a reflection of what you've already given of your heart. Giving should be a reflection of, I have given God, you know, God's in charge of my entire life. He's in charge of my decisions. He's in charge of my future. I'm letting him have full control. And so just, you know what, why not just tack, he's in charge of my money on top of it. It is not, I'm being coerced into giving this money because, you know, somebody's pressuring me. Giving in a biblical sense is a response not to what a person is asking you for. It's a response to what God is prompting you to. Okay? That's a big difference. There's a difference between when God is prompting you to something and you're, and you're being pressured into somebody. And so Paul here is not pressuring them, but he's saying, hey, you know what you did? voluntarily offer this amount. It would be good stewardship of your integrity and of your resources to keep your word. And so that's just kind of his, his first step. Um, but he says, verse 7, just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. He says, look, don't you want to, you know, you guys, you're a church that really kind of has a lot of things going for it. You've got a ton of faith, you got utterance. You guys are speaking in tongues. You're like super Pentecostal. Uh, you have all kinds of knowledgeness. You've got earnestness. Like you're, you're into it. You're, you've got intense love. Why not tack on intense giving, guys? That's really, you know, Paul's saying, look, make this a ripple effect of your devotion to the Lord. Don't make it a summary. It's not, you know, we give to the Lord so that we're justified in doing whatever else we want. We're not buying forgiveness for sins. No. We're responding. You know what? The Lord has given me everything. And so I'm, you know, he's given me, and now I'm responding 
and by his Holy Spirit, I'm walking in faith and knowledge and earnestness and in love and giving. And he's saying it should just flow naturally like that. It shouldn't have to be this whole, you know, like all these things and then giving. It should just be a ripple effect of what we're doing with the Lord. Uh, Verse 12 of chapter 8, though, he does give just a good basic principle. For if the readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. Don't give what you don't have. Okay? So giving is not some high-pressure thing. It's not you don't give so that God is obligated to give you back. If you're in sales, you don't give a million and believe for three million. No. What do you do? You give what you have. You give what the Lord prompts you to. And he, and he, he'll go on uh, in chapter 9, verse 7. He says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it's written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So how much should you give? What's the appropriate amount to give? Well, verse 7 each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. How much are you supposed to give? You're supposed to give exactly as much as the Lord tells you to. And that's not a percentage. That's not a dollar amount uh, that's across the board. That's between you and the Lord. Figure out what that amount is and then give it faithfully. And I don't care where you give it to. Uh, you don't have to give it to this church. You give it to where the Lord tells you to, right? It doesn't impact my salary at all. I actually got a, uh, my salary doubled this year at the church. True story. Because if you take zero and you double it, it's still zero. So it doesn't, it doesn't impact us. You know, it's not, our church is not, we don't have anybody on salary. We don't have anybody on staff. You know, we're just doing ministry as the Lord puts it in front of us. So in your giving, you go to the Lord. Lord, how much am I supposed to give? Who am I supposed to give it to? How can I, I'm your servant. And so everything I have as your servant, is really yours anyways. So how do you want me to distribute it best? That's what giving ought to be. And if somebody's pressuring you or obligating you with something, I would say steer clear of that person or that ministry because God loves a cheerful giver. Nobody wants to feel manipulated in, into giving. And he says, now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Sometimes we hold back on giving because we feel like, well, I can't afford to give. And he says, God will give you what you need. He does not say, if you give, God will bless you with a new car or with, you know, if you give a hundred, you're going to reap a thousand. No, he says, if you give, you know, if you think of it like a seed and you're just sowing seed, God will give you exactly as much seed as you need for your crop. He might not give you one grain more, but he'll give you what you need. So give to the Lord because it's a response, not because you're believing for something else, not because you're being pressured, just because it's the appropriate response. And then as we're wrapping up, we're getting in the, the last stretch. Uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12, Paul's going to just briefly pause and defend himself. And, you know, it's, it's a great principle because we look in Scripture and we see, like, the example of David. David is under attack from his son, all kinds of reputation assaults, and he just says, you know what? I'm just going to let the Lord take care of it. Paul's under attack from false teachers, all kinds of reputation assaults. He says, okay, you know what? I'm going to address this. 
And in both cases, these guys were doing it because it was the right thing to do in the right time. So, you know, defending yourself against an accusation is not wrong. It's not always right. It's what's the appropriate context. And here, Paul, for the sake of the health of this church and for the sake of really the whole church as a whole, because Christians need to know that Paul is, is valid because we put so much stock in what he writes. So he says, okay, um, let's talk about just briefly the accusations that they're giving. Number one, they say that my letters are all, you know, tough and intense, and when I show up, I'm kind of pathetic. And he basically says, do you really want me to act in person like I tell, you, tell it in my letters? Like, basically, yeah, I'm giving it to you in my letters because I don't want to have to give it to you in person, okay? And I still have that conviction. I'm just in person being gracious. Uh, verse 11, he's going to talk about why he didn't take from the church, and he basically says, you guys are a rich church. And I don't want to take money from rich people because I don't want rich people getting cocky and thinking, oh, we're the reason Paul's successful in ministry. He's like, no, sorry, don't need your money. If you're going to use your money and give it to me so that you can say that, so you can get puffed up, I'd rather go broke. That's why I don't take your money, okay? Uh, and then he goes on and starts describing his qualifications. And he says, okay, uh, and basically he's, he's going to keep talking about like, what I'm saying is foolishness here, but here's the deal. And really, in essence, what he's saying is like, I'm going to defend myself, and this feels really stupid. But I'm going to defend myself because it's a situation you guys have put me in. So this feels really stupid. This is not really my first choice, but I'm going to defend myself. So verse uh, 21, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. So whatever anybody else is going to list their qualifications, man, this sounds stupid. I can list them too. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is also the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul had a pretty full life. He says, "You could, okay, if we need to talk about qualifications... Uh, if they're going to claim some sort of special Israeli heritage, I've got them there. If they're going to claim, you know, school of hard knocks, I've got them there. Uh, you know, five times he got whipped 39 times. What's that? 295 times? No, that's not right. But anyways, I can't do the math in my head right now. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked. How many times do you get shipwrecked before you start just hitchhiking? Like, three times... A night in the day I spent in the deep. I spent 36 hours floating on a log wondering what's going to come and eat me in the middle of the ocean. And, I, and along the way, as, as if this wasn't enough, uh, I also have the pressure of dealing with churches like you guys who are always keeping me up at nights. And so he's just saying, okay, I really didn't want to do this, but you know what? Now's the time to defend myself. And he's not, he's not giving this to us to say, basically, I'm spiritually awesome and everyone else is spiritually lame. Okay, and we... You know, we need to not make that mistake when we're reading Paul's testimony here. What we're reading is, 
I'm just serving the Lord. And that's a qualification. I'm walking in obedience, and the Spirit is doing things. And that doesn't make it easy or posh or cushy or whatever else. That's just, I'm just serving the Lord. So there's my qualification for you. Verse 12, he goes on and explains sort of his education. Paul was actually instructed by Jesus Christ. And in Galatians, he'll elaborate a little more. But basically, Paul went out and spent several years living in the desert. And the Lord came to him and instructed him and explained the gospel and grace because Paul wasn't a believer while Jesus was on earth. And so Paul had interactions with the Lord in a way that we really don't understand. He even says, you know, I heard things which I'm not allowed to say. Uh, But basically, the Lord explained the gospel. And then in Galatians, he says, I went back to Jerusalem privately and double-checked with the apostles and said, hey, here's what I think the Lord taught me. Am I right on this? And they said, you're right on. That's the gospel. And we said, okay, let's go. So he describes all that. He describes the challenges. He says, basically, I've been shown so much and blessed so much by the Lord that the Lord allows a weakness in my life, uh, specifically a physical problem that I have to live with every day so that I'm always reminded that I am not the reason that these things have happened. And, you know, I didn't have these ministry opportunities. I didn't have this revelation from God. None of that happened because I'm so spiritually awesome. It happened because God showed grace on me and called me into the ministry. And so I had this physical challenge, and he says, I prayed and asked the Lord to take it away, and the Lord said, nope, my grace is sufficient. You just need to lean on grace. And if you lean on grace, you're good. And, you know, looking at really Paul's book on ministry, that's ministry right there. You lean on your own strength, you will fail every time. You lean on the grace of God, and amazing things will happen. And then chapter 13, just sort of his benediction, uh, verse 5, he says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Are you a Christian? Sometimes we can sit in church and be super comfortable, and we just get used to our groove, and we go in and sing a few songs, and we sit, and how are you doing? I'm doing great. We sit and listen for a while. We try not to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of teaching, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. We come back, the teaching finishes up, we go home. That doesn't make you a Christian. Paul says, test yourselves. Ask yourselves. Just pause right now, and in the integrity of your heart, do I know the Lord? Have I been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do I sincerely believe that what Jesus has said is true, right? Just ask yourselves that. Pause for like 15 seconds and ask yourselves. It's an awkward 15 seconds, wasn't it? Are you in the love of God? He says, hey, you know what? It should be pretty obvious that you're in the love of God. If if you sat there for 15 seconds and you're like, yeah, I am, then great. You're in the ministry. Congratulations. You're part of the call of God. You're part of God's plan. If you sit there and you're like, you know, that's a good question, then you need to address that. You You need to get that taken care of. You know when it's a great time to take care of it? Right now. Paul says, now is an acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So if you sit here for 15 seconds and you're not sure, walk out of this building sure. You can be absolutely positive. You make sure you talk to somebody and you ask for prayer and let's deal with this and make sure that you know God. 
in a personal sense. And then, as he's wrapping up his final benediction, uh, his final blessing on his way out of the letter, he says, verse 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Isn't that beautiful? Rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And I think this is important because, you know, Paul, he describes all these hardships and challenges, and we can look at sometimes like, oh my gosh, you know, ministry is going to be so brutal. He's like, no, ministry is full of peace. It's full of comfort. It's full of all the goodness of God. We're rejoicing in it. And he's not delusional here, okay? He's not denying that he's had all these hard, awful things happen to him. But Paul's pushing for what? An eternal perspective, right? We looked at that in chapter 5. He says, you know, eternally, man, this is so awesome. I am, I am dying. I am rotting. But you know what? I am more and more alive every single day. And he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May the entire Trinity be with you. May all the fullness of God. You need to know God the Father. You need to recognize that Jesus Christ died for your sins and brought you into fellowship with God the Father. And you need to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that is going to raise your soul in the resurrection. The same Holy Spirit wants to give you power right here and now. Right? Walk in the Trinity. Stand in the grace of God. You're in the ministry. And so your summary for being in the ministry is walk with the Lord. Right? That's that's ministry right there. Walk with the Lord. Whatever he says, do it. And that's a rich, full, successful ministry in the eyes of the Lord. So God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of 2 Corinthians. We pray that it would go deep in our hearts, that we would be impacted by it, and that we wouldn't uh, just walk out of here uh, and, and go back to life as we knew it, but that we would really recognize that we're ministers of the gospel. We are servants. We're called to serve you, and God, we want to do that faithfully. So fill us up with your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ and the fellowship that we get to have with you. We pray that we would just stand in grace. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.